Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, fresh from the pages of the Byline Times, a deep dive into the Tory party's donors. Who are they? What do they want? If nothing else, it'll be a chance to enrich your vocabulary. We'll be using words like oligarchy, that simply means government by a small group of people, and kleptocracy, that's where those in power appropriate the nation's wealth. Does this really sum up the relationship between the Conservatives and their elite backers in modern Britain? I don't think that that's an overstatement, because when you look at how the influence is formulated by these multimillionaires, and you look at the number of multimillionaires who have donated, who have also won government contracts, you can only conclude that people do not give money for free. They're not giving it just because it's driven by ideology. They're giving it because in some degree they want a return on their investment. And there are fears the UK could end up mirroring the US political scene, where so-called dark money from donors can end up with an outsized influence. We can see how this dark money in the States has really harmed the environment, has really harmed human rights. I don't think we are at that stage in the UK, but nothing is impossible. And we are seeing steps towards that kind of structure and that kind of policy making. And that should really worry us. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast only exists thanks to subscribers to the Byline Times. For £36 a year, you get our brilliant monthly newspaper, help fund our news-breaking website and Byline TV, and this pod. We aren't owned by any media mogul. Thanks, but no thanks, Mr Murdoch, and we don't dance to any corporate tune. So do subscribe if you can. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, if you read the Byline Times, you'll already know how many great stories, how much great journalism we generate. But this is a real corker. An investigation by Byte, the Byline intelligence team, into top Tory donors, which poses troubling questions for how our democracy can thrive and even survive. There's nothing wrong with ordinary citizens shelling out a few quid to back the causes they believe in. Far from it. And Labour is, of course, bankrolled by the unions. But the Tories receive far more in individual donations than any other party. And many of their donors are drawn from the wealthy elite of British society. So why exactly does that matter? Let's hear from Byline Times Chief Social Affairs Correspondent Sean Norris and Ian Overton, who heads up Byte, the byline intelligence team, who began by explaining their key findings. I think the overall idea is that we found that the average elite conservative donor in the UK who has given over £100,000 is a 65-year-old white male London banker called Michael. Now, some of your listeners might think that this is almost a cliché, but clichés come out of repeated witnessing. The world of Tory donors is incredibly murky. It's very hard to find out who's been given what in terms of total amounts. You have to go down and roll up your sleeves and do the data work. It's also quite difficult sometimes to find out who is giving what. All they have to provide is their name, not a date of birth, not an origin. And 
what we looked at was 300, almost 300 elite donors to the Conservative Party who have given over £100,000 since 2011. In total, they gave something like £154 million. And on average, these guys, and I say guys meaningfully because it is mainly men, gave over half a million pounds, £535,000. And when you begin to dig into the data that is publicly available, almost 90% are men, only 36 of 286 people we identified were women, and no woman was in the top 10 donor. In fact, we found more men called John, Peter, or David than we found total number of women who have donated. But we also found that the average age was late 60s, around 68, which does speak towards how older white men still hold the reins of influence and power in this country. In fact, there's actually a 65-year-old person called Michael Tory who donated 347,000 to the Conservatives since 2010, and he runs an independent financial advisory firm. And it's people like Michael Tory define the Tories. Um, <laughs> and that, Michael that, that, Tory that, is his real name, is it? Michael Tory indeed is his real name. The biggest donor to the Conservative Party is another Michael called Michael Farmer. And, and it probably isn't that much of a surprise to your listeners to know that actually Michael Farmer goes by another title called Lord Farmer. So the interconnectedness between honours, the interconnectedness between the City of London financial services, the fact that they are generally in their 60s, they're white, they're male, This is the dominant feature of our research. And nobody else has ever done this and gone down thick into the weeds of the data and really tried to extract this. But I think what this does is it shows a very distinctive light on who holds the reins of power in the UK. And for all of the talk about inclusiveness and genders being addressed and trying to do bias in society, unpick that, for all of that talk, In 2021, we are still with a situation where the country is run by older white men. Just break down the research a little bit for me then. You've analysed elite Tory donors. So what exactly do you mean by that? We took as a benchmark anyone who'd given a single donation of £100,000 or more. There could be donors out there who cumulatively in the last decade have given £100,000 or more, but in smaller increments of, let's say, £50,000 or whatever. But then our task would have been enormous. And the reason our task would have been enormous to do that is because you might get somebody called Michael Farmer, who also donates as Lord Farmer, who donates as Michael S. Farmer, who donates as Mr. Farmer or M. Farmer. And the problem is, is that, yes, when you get Lord Michael Farmer, you can identify it as exquisitely that. But it could be there's somebody else called Michael Farmer in the country who also gives money. So the John Smiths of this world or the, you know, the David Joneses might donate, but it's very difficult to work out if they're the same people donating. So these are identifiable individuals who have given at least Uh, 100,000. And of the identifiable individuals of 286, there were 26 that we didn't know the origin of. They had such a generic name, we do not know. And I think this is a very important point to address, really, just how challenging it is to really scrutinise the data set. But the end result of our analysis, whilst it might 
served to reinforce a conventional truth that the Tory party is filled with rich old white men. I think it's important to prove that it is funded by rich old white men and where those rich old white men's vested interests lie. Because now we can begin to analyze why certain industries like the financial services sector are given such a light ride by the government when it comes to compliance and legislation. We also might want to look at why certain sectors of the community, of the general population, seem to be given more honours, more access to power. And also it raises questions when Boris Johnson talks about how multicultural his own cabinet is, that what we need to ask is, actually, is this reflective of the hands that rest on the shoulders of ministers? And these are invariably old white male hands. They're not representative of the UK as a whole. And Sean, you've written a lot for Byline Times about women's issues, looking at the world from a, a feminist perspective. So when you've done this work with Ian, really drilling down into the, the nature of Tory donors, and you discover that so many of them are older white men, older rich white men, it should be pointed out. What do you make of that? What does that tell you? I think, as Ian says, what we're really seeing is who is resting their hands on the shoulders of ministers. Grant Shapps, who was the former party chairman, is very clear that donations do not translate into political influence. But of course, influence happens in so many different ways. Influence can happen because you have access to meetings, you attend the balls, you go to the parties, you go to conference, you meet people. So I think we really need to think about who is getting access to ministers and who is getting access to politics. And when we have it very clearly laid out that the majority of people who get that access are older white men, you can start to look at the policy decisions that have been made over the last 10 years. Now, one of the biggest things that we've seen in politics since 2010 is, of course, the policies of austerity. And we know that austerity has been very much paid for by women. I think something like between 80 and 86 percent of the costs of austerity have come out of women's purses. And so why are we seeing these policies that disproportionately impact women? Why has safety nets for issues around domestic abuse been withdrawn from women? Perhaps there is a link to who has influence on the party and the decisions they are making further down the line. And I think we really need to interrogate the kind of gender policies, the sex policies that we've seen coming out and think about how that might link to who is donating, who is supporting it, who it is speaking to when it writes policy, who is it trying to attract, who is it trying to reward? But maybe the Tories are just better at attracting these individual donations. I was looking at the figures for the 2019 general election and the Conservatives received £13 million in individual donations. Labour received just £159,000. Maybe the Conservatives are, are just more attractive to individual funders. I think it's definitely fair to say that over the years, the Conservatives approach towards things like taxation and the dissemination of wealth has meant that it has become very attractive to individuals of high net wealth to vote or support the Tory party. The Labour Party traditionally has been supported in terms of financial donations by union fees and hasn't really chased individual donations. But then again, the average Labour voter earns less than the average Conservative voter, or at least has done historically. 
I think the deeper issue is about influence. And when we looked at these 286, what we saw was a very high number dominating in the financial services sector and in wealth creation sectors. And those sectors are not only dominated by men, but they are socially and politically have always been in favour of what would be described as very loose touch regulation from the government, open up to sort of free trade issues, believing in, I guess, unfettered capitalism. And unfettered capitalism in of itself would reside much more comfortably under a conservative manifesto than it would under arguably a Labour manifesto. The real challenge, of course, is if you can fill your coffers by appealing to a very small number of middle-aged white men, elites working in the city, then the question is, is how does society then end up being repositioned to favour just a tiny elite as opposed to policies to be formulated that seek to benefit the general groups? And I think that this goes to the very heart of why this is a concern, because the question ultimately is, who is wagging the dog, the tail, or is the dog wagging its tail? And I think when it comes to donors, it's the hidden influence, these relationships that may exist off diary record. It's the meetings that we know occur in dinner parties, in dining societies, hidden from public view and the scrutiny of journalists. And what promises are made, not only in those meetings, but on things like WhatsApp by ministers that is never scrutinised or susceptible to freedom of information. This opaque government chumming up with millionaire and billionaire donors, concocting legislation that it can push through based on its very heavy majority in the House. Then the question is, is this not only a government by oligarchy, is it a government by kleptocracy? And I don't think that that's an overstatement, because when you look at how the influence is formulated by these multimillionaires, and you look at the number of multimillionaires who have donated, who have also won government contracts, you can only conclude that people do not give money for free. They're not giving it just because it's driven by ideology. They're giving it because in some degree they want a return on their investment. And just to amplify that point, Sean, I know that the Financial Times recently reported that there was an advisory board, as it was called, in inverted commas, a, a club of donors featuring Tory donors who donated at least a quarter of a million pounds. And the specific function of that advisory board was that it arranged meetings with the likes of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, and Boris Johnson. I guess the nature of power and influence of this sort is that you can't necessarily see it translating directly into policy, into legislation. But if you're inviting people to give you money as a result of which they then get access to the two most powerful people in government, well, what else are they paying their money for? Absolutely. And I think this is why we really need to open up the question about what influence looks like. 
It's all very well, as I say, for someone like Grant Shapps to say that donors don't influence policy. But if you're in the room with power, if you're having this elite access to power, of course, the conversations you're going to have are going to linger in people's minds. They're going to take them home with them. They're going to think about them more. And I just wanted to share with you this really great quote from Francis Coppola in Peter Gagan's book, Democracy for Sale. She talks a little bit about the reliance of Conservative Party on big donors. And what she says is, we should be worried that a major party in Britain is struggling to raise funds. And in that, she's talking about membership, you know, the sort of garden variety membership of the Conservative Party has dropped as it has generally across political parties, with the exception of Labour. And she says, the reason we need to be concerned about this is it means they continue to have to dance even more to the tune of the cranks who fund it. The crank she's talking about are these kind of major donors, these big spenders, the people who will go to the advisory board meetings. And this will likely mean growing numbers of policies that benefit particular niche interests. And so, again, we've got to think about how influence works, where conversations happen, who has access and how that access can turn into policy and political decision making. One intriguing feature, in was the link between these Tory donors and people who have honours and titles. A significant number of these people are honoured in some way. And again, you can't prove that there is a direct link between having an honour and a title and having donated money to the Conservative Party, but there are certainly more titled people than, than is average in society, I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. So we found that more than a quarter of top Conservative Party donors hold a title uh, such as a lordship or have an honour such as an OBE or an MBE. And we found that more than three quarters of those elite donors got their titles after the Conservative first came to power, even albeit in a power sharing government in 2010. So these are recent honours given and recent donations given. It goes back to this fundamental question, doesn't it? That people who are wealthy know how to handle their wealth. They do not become wealthy by being ludicrously generous because ludicrously generous doesn't lead to an accumulation. And therefore, large amounts of money given are not given in a kind of exquisite altruistic fashion. They are given for influence. And that influence comes on maybe an influence in terms of trying to manage policy. It might come from social influence in terms of getting an honour or a seat on the House of Lords, or it may come in the form of influence in terms of being able to get the ear of a minister. And I think that when we analysed of the 286, we could find 259 individuals who we could find background details on. And of those, 67 had some form of honour, title or peerage. These are not elite donors who have received their title by birth or by marriage. They were only the hereditary peers, Lord Jamie Borick, Lady Annabel Goldsmith and Lady Alison de Haan, who had donated. The majority were what might we call new elites, new aristocracy, who weren't born into it. And of the elite donors, 19 were given life peerages, 20 had been knighted, 14 held CBEs, 8 OBEs, and 3 MBEs. There's often revelations that splash on front pages of papers that sort of say, cash for honour scandals. But the truth of the matter, I think, is hiding in plain sight. 
if you donate a large amount of money to the Tory party, you have a one in four chance of getting a nice, comfortable title, potentially even access to the House of Lords as a consequence of that, and all of the costs incurred within there. And I don't think that this is a coincidence. One in four people generally in the British population do not have titles and honours. It is one <laughs> resided for the elites. Uh, Sean, the most egregious example of this in recent times was the appointment of Lord Crudus, Peter Crudus. He took a seat in the Lords in February 2021. This was despite the fact that he had failed the appointments test, as it were. His potential appointment was reviewed by the committee that looks at peerages, and they said he should not be given a peerage. Nevertheless, they were overruled by Boris Johnson. Just days afterwards, he donated half a million pounds to the Conservative Party. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what, what are we to make of that? I think it's just one of the many examples of the modern Conservative Party of what we call failing up. You do something wrong, you may even lose your job, you may get, have to be forced to resign, but sooner or later you will be welcomed back into the fold. And particularly if you have a lot of money to spend, it seems that you'd be even more easily welcomed back into the fold. And so it really opens up questions about accountability and about what kind of politics and politicians we want to see. And so, yeah, the Crudus scandal seems to fit into two patterns, both this idea that donations will reward you with some form of influence, but also this idea that no one is accountable for wrongdoing anymore in the modern Conservative Party. And no matter what you do, there'll always be a seat for you at the table. And Sean, Ian mentioned there the fact that more than two dozen of the donors actually could not be identified. So that means that we, as members of the public, do not know anything about more than two dozen people who've donated significant sums of money to the Conservative Party. That, that doesn't feel like an open democracy. Absolutely. I think there's a few things that we can do to improve transparency. And obviously, the reason we have this data is because all donations are recorded in the Electoral Commission, even if, as Ian says, there's some that we simply struggle to identify. So there are things the Electoral Commission can do to make sure we can recognise donors, that we can identify them, for example, asking for date of birth or other identifying details along with the donation. However, the election bills 2021, which is about to come into Parliament, is actually sort of taking a bit of a wrecking ball to the Electoral Commission. So any hope that we could see more transparency and more democratic accountability in the near future feels very unstable. And I think both myself and everyone working in the bike team and the wider general public as well have a real concern that we're going down the American path in terms of dark money, in terms of not really knowing where influence lies, where money is coming from and what that money can buy at the end of the day. So really, rather than weakening the Electoral Commission, which seems to be the aim of the Conservative Party at the moment, we should be strengthening it to have more democratic accountability and more transparency all round, not just with donors, but across the board, sort of third party organisations, where money is coming from, how the elections work. I, th I think that there's an absolute appetite in the British political system to retain power at all costs. The overwhelming majority of the, the Conservatives have in party means that they are able to push through legislation that will future-proof them. And whether it's Boris Johnson seeking to allow more donations coming in from 
foreign donors to the Conservative Party, or whether it's a refusal to show the internal correspondence or even the diary meetings between ministers and major Tory donors. All of this veers towards a framing that is, we've got the wealth and we don't care. So I'm not optimistic as to what can be done to stop this. I think that's the point. We can rail about it as journalists. We can demand that the Electoral Commission, for instance, has things like the date of birth of donors or ensures that donors use their passport name only when donating so that you can see if somebody is given successively over time. Yes, these might be small things that the Electoral Commission can do. The trouble is, is there's no public appetite in the House of Parliament to instigate this reform. And even if this reform was instigated, it's not illegal to donate to political parties. And so the Conservative Party will always have the benefit of large funders. And as I said before, those large funders don't give their money cheaply. They want something in return. And the the real challenge for investigative journalism is proving cause and effect how this individual gave money and then benefited. But the problem slightly is that some of these individuals are giving money when they're already ludicrously wealthy. And what they're now seeking isn't necessarily a massive contract, but what they might be seeking is something that equates to social acceptance. They might be invited to better parties in their eyes. They may end up having lunch at the Lords. They may end up with a baronet. And that's the more insidious nature of the British institutional system and the class hierarchies in this country. As a journalist, you're expected to reveal X gave this amount and two weeks later got this contract. That sometimes happens, but it's more insidious than that. It's about bolstering the entire system and getting access to a secret garden of influence and privilege that very few get to see. I don't want to excuse the Conservatives in this in any way. The story is about the Conservative Party, it is about their donors, and it's about how their donors may be gaining access to influence and people who have power. So I'm not trying to sideline that, but is one of the reasons that there is no appetite for Parliament is that the accusation will be levelled against Labour, that they are equally in hock to the trade unions and that their funding base, if we look at this in a really deep way and try and dismantle the way in which parties are currently funded, that Labour themselves might be affected, albeit that their funding base comes from a different source in society. Of course, in any form of donations, there needs to be transparency and democratic accountability. I guess the major difference in union funding is that that is coming from a mass base of the public. You know, unions have thousands and thousands of members who pay their union dues. I pay my union dues. You know, Although union members don't really have access to the leader of the Labour Party, do they? That is usually reserved for the trade union leaders. Who yeah, absolutely. Cash. But I guess, you know, they are accountable to the union membership. And the union membership is paying for influence in through the unions in order to get representation. And so rather than these very singular characters with a huge amount of money, the Labour Party donations are coming from a mass public community or cooperation. So I think that's the major difference. I also think it's interesting that this new elections bill 
is looking at third party organisations around elections and having power to add and remove third party organisations. And one of the sort of rumours going around or the concerns going around is that is to target the unions and therefore to target labour support. So I think there's always questions to be asked. Unions need to be held to account. There's obviously been issues around, you know, union spending, union funding and, and influence. But actually, where is wealth and power concentrated and where is the money coming from? And the money coming from unions is not the same as coming from one individual donor. What do we do about this then? I mean, you're pretty pessimistic, Ian, about getting any change. But as you've described it, people are potentially anyway gaining access to powerful people in order to potentially change the laws of this country. And yet you're downbeat about the prospect of changing that. But this is important and we do need to challenge it, don't we? It is. And and I guess the downbeat, to some degree, is based on conversations of Labour MPs who have no real power at the moment. And they shrug their shoulders and sort of look forlorn when you talk to them about it. And they say, well, you know, we're, we're kind of just keeping the flame alive, hoping that we will rebuild the party, rebuild the support base. As a journalist, I try not to be politically focused. If Labour was in power, I would be doing an investigation into Labour at this moment. So I'm not trying to argue for political change. What I do believe is that democracy needs to flourish in areas where there's transparency of funders and a clear indication of where that funding has influence. Otherwise, democracy becomes, as I said, a kleptocracy. And so the the ultimate ambition of a journalist, I think, yes, I am downbeat because I realise that this investigation isn't suddenly going to transform anything. But it doesn't mean it will stop me trying with Sean and the Byte team from shining a light into the dark corners. The deeper issue, I think, is to why, even though these potentially saying a 68-year-old Londoner banker male called Michael is the main donor to the Tory party of over half a million, even though that might be a sort of a conventional truth, and many people may have second-guessed that. I think the deeper issue is that large newspapers, the Times, the Telegraph, even the Guardian, they're not doing this research into the systemic influences and systemic potential for corruption. And so it remains to groups like Byline, who might sit not at the heart of British media, but are really casting light into areas of British public life that aren't scrutinised. I think that the point for your listeners and the point for our readers is that we are at least attempting to hold power to account. And journalists who do not hold power to account are merely propagandists. And just one final thought from you, Ian. We're not in this discussion and in your writings with Sean trying to blame or finger point at any one individual. That's not really what this story is about, even though we've mentioned a few individuals. The whole point is this systemic failure to have an accountable democracy in a country that prides itself on its democratic tradition. The point really is that there are, and and we need to really contemplate this, if the average donor is half a million pounds, we know there are over two dozen individuals who have donated sizable amounts of money to the government, and we do not know a single thing about them because we can't identify them based on the data that's available. For as much as we know, they could be Russian agents, 
They could be Chinese agents. There could be very real foreign influence in political funding. If you want to throw an election in this country, if you were President Putin, it wouldn't take a great deal of money to do that. And I think that this is the fundamental point, is we need to talk about national security, we need to talk about national transparency and national accountability. Because without that, you may get people who are very proud of this country claiming we have the best political system in the world. But as far as I can see, it's not that different from the corruption one might see in places like Brazil or Belarus or Russia. Money buys power. And that might be a truth as old as the trees, But the problem is, is that we're not addressing it today. Rich men, rich, white, old men still buy power. And that should make your listeners angry, I believe. To echo exactly what Ian said, this is about accountability. It's about transparency and it's about democracy. And I think if we look at the example of America, where there is so much dark money, where niche interests have so much influence over policy, where fossil fuel money coming out of people like the Koch brothers has really derailed so much progress on the climate crisis, where think tanks such as the Heritage Foundation have been gunning for abortion laws backed by some of the wealthiest families in America who have very, very close political ties to the Trump administration. We can see how this dark money in the States has really harmed the environment, has really harmed human rights. I don't think we are at that stage in the UK, but nothing is impossible. And we are seeing steps towards that kind of structure and that kind of policymaking. And that should really worry us because we have a chance to stop it. And if we don't, we could end up in a similar situation to the States. Sean Norris with Ian Overton. And I really would urge you to read their reports in full at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, which has extra content you can't see online. For just £36 a year, you're helping to sustain great digging journalism. More details at bylinetimes.com. If you want to react to this story, the conversation can get quite lively on our Twitter feed, at bylinetimespod, so feel free to join in. And if you want to get in touch via email, it's goldbergradio at gmail.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.